Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here at RCC, and it is great to see you all here live. Those of you online joining us, it's great to be able to be together, uh, to be able to step into one further week in this series that we've been a part of as we walk through the Bible together. For those of you who are joining us, uh, we are in a process, a process of a whole year of taking steps through the Bible one week at a time as a congregation, reading the whole Bible together and then preaching sections of that particular passages that happened that week. So this last week we moved into Deuteronomy. And so just to orient us a little bit as to where we are in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the fifth, fifth book of the Torah. So five books in the Torah. It's the fifth book. And it's, it's one of those books that if you're not careful, you may realize, wait a minute, I've heard this all before. If you've been reading, you're going like, I think we talked about this before. And the answer, of course, is yes, you have. This is Moses now, 40 years later, talking to the children of Israel, a brand new generation, through a course of basically three big sermons that he gives right on the edge of the Jordan River, right before they walk in to take possession of this land that God has promised them, that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the setting of this entire book of Deuteronomy. A whole bunch of people sitting by a river, looking over at a promised land, hearing one last time, one specific time from their leader, Moses, what it means to move into the land with God as their God. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, is also known as the Shema. So that's kind of like, it is the, it's the John 3.16 for Judaism, okay? So you never really usually see Shema on the side of football games, but that's what you would see if you're part of, a, of the Jewish faith, a part of the Jewish community. The Shema is this overarching picture of what does it mean to know and to love God. It's a centering passage on what it means to know and to love God. Now, if you've been reading, you realize we haven't heard a ton about the love of God yet. We certainly haven't heard a whole lot about what it means for the people of God to love God. That actually shows up hardly at all in the first four books of the, of the Old Testament. But in Deuteronomy, ten times you will hear the words, love the Lord your God. Ten times. There's only 12 other times in the rest of the Bible. So Deuteronomy captures this picture of what it means to love the Lord your God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean to love God? We're going to look at it under three headings. And we must love God as he is. That we must love God comprehensively. And that we must love him by grace. So we must love him as he is. That we must love him comprehensively and that we must love him by grace alone. Well, God, we get to love God as he is. Verse 4, the very first phrase of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, some of the translations say the Lord alone but this is a revolutionary statement in the midst of the context and culture that they were living in. Everyone had their own gods. Everyone did. So you had the, the God of the sea, and then you had the God of the mountains, you had the Phoenician God, you had the Philistine God, you had the artisan God, you had the agricultural God, you had the God of fertility. And so everyone worshiped their God in order to get what they needed and they wanted as a community, as individuals against the other gods of the nations. God comes to his people and says, no, 
I am one. I am the one. I am exclusively God of gods and Lord of lords. And of course, believe it or not, that's actually not super different than, than where we live today, right? Everyone has the right to believe in God in, in the way that they would want to portray him, in the way in which we may even want to believe or imagine him to be. That people that I hear, or you hear it on social media, people saying that I would never believe in a God who would, who, who would define my sexuality for me. I, I could never, never submit to a God who's going to limit my self-expression. I, I could never require to be submitted to submit to a God instead to be partnered with, you know, like a 50-50 agreement on how things work. A God who has say over my body, over my money, over my time, over everything. I don't, I don't know that I'm interested in a God like that, but I'd like to make a God of my own construction. And that's, that's the way of the, of the day, right? Everyone has a God that they would like to see be in, well, frankly, their own image, uh, maybe our own image. We see here God saying is you don't construct me. Now, now I, I created you. There is one of me and only one, and you depend on me. No one defines me. I define myself, and I define you, and I define reality. I am real of real, the truest thing. I'm as real as gravity, as real as death. And you have to know me, if you're going to know me and if you're going to love me, you're going to have to know me as I am and as I have chosen to reveal myself through my words. Now, depending on where you are in the spiritual journey or where you are and how you grew up, what kind of faith journey you've had, that may seem limited or, or, or narrow thinking. How can God say, hey, listen, this is the only way to understand God? That, that's not super popular. That's a little bit countercultural right now. Like, no, 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 my God and your gods are probably a little different, and we're all working our way towards the same thing, right? I mean, that's kind of the, like the, the understanding du jour, right? That's, that, that's how it plays out. God says, no, that's not how it works. And what's funny is that we would apply that to God, but we would never apply that to ourselves, right? So let's do a little thought experiment here. So Peter, Peter comes to me and says, hey, Matt, I'm writing a biography about you. Thanks, Peter. Um, and uh, I, I see you as uh, a marine biologist who who loves to spend his days in the deep waters with sharks, like, like big great whites and tiger sharks, you know, the kind that kill you. And, and on top of that, I see you as someone who, lo who loves to research and draw and, and write detailed reports about these particular animals. And you don't really like people. You like to be by yourself, kind of a recluse. And, uh, and you, like, you don't like games. You, you hate winning. Um, and like you think that like like baseball's like just as good as like football. Now, if that's what Peter said, and Peter, I really appreciate the writing and all, but like that's offensive, because if you know anything about me, you know that like I have to pray when I'm in knee deep water in the ocean. So like the thought of going anywhere beyond like the thighs is not going to happen. So that's not that's not a real thing. That's not who I am. You. You don't get to write how I am, and let's be honest, baseball's not even a real sport, right? I mean, we all agree with those things. So, I mean, like, that's, that's the reality for me. So for Peter, for you to be writing something is kind of offensive, and I feel like you don't know me. 
And if I wrote something about that like you, you'd say, wait, wait, you, that's not who I am. And if Peter just said, yeah, I understand, Matt, but the, that's how I want to imagine and think of you to be. It does not make it so. I'm not that way just because Peter wants me to be that way and is going to write about my me being that way. And neither does God. It's not narrow. It's consistent. God says, you can't make me up as you wish. You can't know me by making me up. You have to discover me if you are to know me, if you are to love me as I am. And you will never love me if I am a personalized fabrication of your desires and your will. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons why we're spending a year in the Bible. The invitation to you is we want you to have an opportunity to see God in the pages of the scriptures as he talks about himself. We just read two passages this morning that talk about God who's saying stuff about himself. Now, you may not like it all. You may not agree with it all. But guess what? That's what he's saying about himself. And so we have to work with that reality at hand and not twist reality. If we are to love God, we must love him as he is, not as we would make him to be. Loved ones, the God that your heart most desperately needs is a God you didn't create, that you didn't edit, that you didn't custom fit to your preferences. Because when you fail yourself or you fail others, a God of your own fabrication will not be able to forgive you. When you are crippled with shame, you're going to need something on the outside, not something you made, something on the outside speaking the reality of what is truest about you. Because if it's your own voice, it's an echo chamber and it will yield nothing. We must love God as he is. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we must love God as he is if we are to love him at all. And we must love him then comprehensively. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and, and with all your soul and with all your might. Love is commanded by God here. Can you command love? How do, you, how do you say, you must love me? Well, the reason why that sounds strange to us is because when we think about love, we think primarily of the emotion of love, right? Of the feeling of what love is. That's not what God has in mind here. We have this sense that I, if I don't feel this and I'm asked to act contrary to it, that I'm violating myself, that I'm, that I'm not being true to who I really am, that I'm, if it's not authentic, then it must be fake. Right? That's, that's the current cultural understanding. That's, that's actually what's in most of us. It's like, yeah, if I don't feel like it, well, then like, what am I supposed to do? Fake it? No one wants that. God's not saying, I want a bunch of fakers. It's not what he's saying. The idea of being a, in a committed, a committed disposition and engagement of the whole heart towards God is precisely what he's inviting here. Heart, soul, and strength. Even though that's increasingly 
foreign to our modern sensibilities. And of course, according to Jesus, so you can take it up with God in the Old Testament, but you have to take it up with Jesus in the New Testament when he basically takes the obeying the commands of God and loving God and he makes them inseparable. He says in John 14, 21, listen to this. Like this is, this will mess you up if you really work it out. Whoever has my commands, okay? So whoever has the commands of God, Jesus' commands, and keeps them, so obeys them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. There's a there's an entire sermon in this one verse. This is an incredible verse. But, but listen to the reality of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you do the things that I command, then that means that you love me. And by the way, if you love me, then, then my Father is going to love you because you're doing the things that I command. And God loves the things that he commands because God loves who he is because he is the most beautiful, the most amazing reality. And so, of course, he delights in that. And Jesus says, and I will love you too. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to manifest myself to you. I can, do you want to see Jesus? Do you, do you want to know God? Jesus would say, if you know my commands, you've got, got to know what they are. And, and if, you, if you obey them, if you keep them, then you're manifesting the kind of love that allows a return on understanding who I am. And I, the more I obey, the more I understand my, his love for me and the more I find myself understanding who he is and it just goes on and on. They're inseparable. So love can't be a feeling because it's commanded and it means to love is to do all the things, including things that we don't want to do or things that are difficult for you that may not be difficult for me, but things that are difficult for me that are not difficult for you to follow, to obey, to submit, to kneel before the Lord and say, you're the one who decides, not me. If we're going to only love with our feelings, then we're only going to have a part of us belonging to God and not the most reliable part and consistent part. Command is to love him with our whole hearts it's the kind of love that transforms us individually. It's the kind of love that transforms us communally. And, and what you see in this next verses, 6 through, the, um, through, um, through 10, is this pervasive awareness and, and, and thoughtfulness and connectedness with all that we do and in every place, in every context of our lives, in everything and everywhere and with everyone to God. So it's about to get more impressive more surprising. Verse 6, God says, and these words that I command you today, Moses says, these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You're going to overlay them over the control center of your life, the seed of all your affections and of your will. You're going you're to overlay these commands over your heart, the command to love me and to do all that I've put before you. Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children. This is gonna be the primary context of how you're going to train up your children to be in submission to God, to obey his commands, to delight in him. So you're gonna teach them, you're gonna speak them to your children and, and you're gonna talk of them, the rest of verse seven, you shall talk of them when you, when you sit in your, home, in your house and when you walk by the way, you're gonna talk about them at home and on the road and you're, it's gonna be a part of your private life and it's gonna be a part of your public life. 
talk about them when you lie down and when you rise. They're going to pervade your, your rest, your resting life and your, your working life. It's going to be the, the last thing, the love of God and the commands of God are going to be the last thing that are going to be on your heart and on your mind as you lay down for bed. And, and they're, the, they're the first things as you rise out of bed. Verse 8, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. The, the, the commands of the Lord, the, the, to love the Lord is to be the thing that is in all of your actions of your hands and all the thoughts of your mind. It's the thing you can't avoid because you see it all times with your eyes. It's what you think about. It's what you do. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on the gates, you're going to inscribe these truths in a prominent location in your home in a way that makes them obvious. And then you're going to make them known in the public sphere in which all of you, where, where you live, the, the gates, you're going to inscribe them on the gates. So it's not just this private reality, but this public sphere to make your love of God and the commands of God the central part of your civic and, and economic and, and political life for all of your culture. This is not compartmentalization of God. Where is this not supposed to be happening? I asked that question, someone was like, well, it looks like during the sleeping time. Sure. But you, you see that there's no compartmentalization here. It's everywhere. It pervades every moment, every atmosphere, every context. So we don't get to put God in a box. It's not privately, I, I love God and I follow his commands, but, but publicly, I'm kind of, on the, it's kind of on the DL. I keep that over here. It's not at home, but not at work. It's not at church, but not at home. No, it's everywhere. And so some of what it means to receive the word of the Lord this morning is for us to move towards a decompartmentalization of our love of God and of our obedience of his word. And we are amazing at compartmentalizing. I'm amazing at compartmentalizing and to move increasingly towards an integrated life where everything that we do, everything that we think about, our relationships, all of our environments, all that, all that I am is orbiting around God. This is what this, is what this passage is saying. Are you, you feeling the weight of it, by the way? Good. It's good. That's what's supposed to happen here. Like all of what you do think, every moment of your life is supposed to orbit around who God is. Everything, every thought, every motion, every action, every conversation is to orbit around who God is and not the other way around. And loved ones, too many of us put God in a box. Like we put him over here and like, you know, we read three chapters in a psalm through our app and we're like, sweet, checked off God for the day. Or you got behind and so you got to do six and two, you know, like checked off God for two days. No, that's, that, that's not what we're talking about. Yes, read and, and, and study. Those are, those are great things, but, but there has to be more than that, not more like to-dos, more of a disposition that says, I don't put God in a box. He actually belongs in every sphere and every moment of my life. It's overwhelming, isn't it? It's so much easier to keep God over here. 
I, um, probably about a month and a half ago, maybe two months now, uh, I got a, uh, through a podcast I was listening to, I heard about a, an app called the Pause app. Any of you guys, anybody use the Pause app yet? So the Pause app is this app um, that invites you twice a day to either a one minute, three minute, five minute, or 10 minute, just pause at 10 and at two. And it's just an invitation to kind of refocus your heart and mind towards God. John Eldridge and his crew put it together. It's really well done. So I got going on. I was like, this is fantastic. You know, keeps track of stuff. And a couple other people were doing it, and it was really great. And what I noticed is over the course of the last few weeks, um, when it shows up on my phone, you know, at 10, at 10 a.m., it goes like, hi, would you like to take a pause? And I go, no, I'm busy. And then at 2 that day, of course, it comes back and says, hey, would you like to take a pause now? And I'm like, I don't have a minute. Because you understand, I got church work to do, y'all. I mean, I got emails to send. You know, I'm in the middle of writing something. I'm, I'm thinking about a different strategy. We're trying to figure out a problem that, and so, you see, like, here's the really, really good news. The pervasive nature of what God calls us to do in loving him is overwhelming. It really is. I have a hard time with two and ten. But one of the things I realized, and that's one of the gifts that this passage was to me this week, was the invitation to say, what would it look like <laughs> to believe that if I oriented my world, if I, if I orbited my world around God, even for just a one or three minute pause a couple times a day, that he might have something for me that I am otherwise missing on how I know him and love him, and I'm actually able to even serve and enter each one of those pauses says things like, God, I give everyone and everything to you. Yeah, that's kind of a good thing to have in the middle of your day, right? Like it, to, in the middle of your meeting, in the middle of the, the tough conversation you just had with your kids. Like, Lord, I give everyone and everything to you, God, because you are the one around which I orbit. And you know what's amazing is I keep going like, no, 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 I'm good. God, could you orbit around me for a little bit? Because I got stuff to do. So we're the same, you see, and then this passage strikes me. It, it hits me between the frontlets of my eyes. God calls us to love him, not as a box to check, but as an invitation, an enticement to have us orbit our lives around him and around all of his ways. And I, what I was confronted, the question I was confronted with this week was with, with the swipe, you know, because it's, it's amazing how, um, it's amazing how the, the disposition of my heart gets revealed by a simple action, right? It's always the case, right? You blow up, you get really angry, suddenly it's like, oh, I'm not an angry person, but something got revealed. Well, that's what gets revealed when I'm like, I don't have time for that. Dismiss. Which is just a terrible thing when it's like, you want to spend time with me? Dismiss. Um, but the question that came to my heart was, do I really want God? Like, do I really want God or do I want something else? And, and I'm not like, I'm not a legalist. Like, God doesn't love me because I take a minute. I don't, that is not how it works. But it's a rhythm that I've invited my own heart into in which I am now discarding because I don't need him. I don't want him. That's, that's what came out as I dismissed it earlier this week and suddenly was like, oh, my I don't want you, I want what I'm doing more. I'm wanting what I can accomplish more, which is 
high on my issues. I want something else more than you. And that's what God is inviting us to look at. Do you, loved ones, do you want God? Do you want God or do you want something else? I'm not saying how much do you want God. I'm saying do you want him as he is? Because that's what he invites us into in this passage. I find it fascinating that And by the way, this is, this is what I would say. If you find yourself saying, I want God, like, Lord, I want you, but I am, like, overwhelmed by, I am burdened under, I am, like, overcome by the magnitude of what it would mean to, to try and have relationship with you or to, then that's the right place to start. Lord, I want to want you more is always the place to start. And God invites you from there. You'll notice, by the way, just how communal this is, right? How much of this says, uh, how God says, I, I want you to talk about this. Not, not listen. And by the way, it's great to take notes during a sermon and to listen to a sermon. You're not getting to talk. I'm doing the talking right now, and I get that, which is why this is not the primary means by which you're going to be changed. You're actually going to be changed when you take the stuff that you read, the stuff that you heard today, and you talk about it. Talk about it when you're walking along the way and you're at work and you're going like, hey, I heard this crazy thing from our pastor this week. Or when you're in a community group or you're in a conversation with a spiritual friend, like, talk about it. That's one of the primary ways in which we stir up the things of God in our hearts. But, but more significantly, it's the only and most primary way in which we work out the reality of these commands, this love of God about our marriage, about our, about our money, about our, about our friendships, about every sphere of, it's the where we work out how that is supposed to play itself out by talking it out, by being in the kind of community where when you talk about the things of God, it's not weird or uncomfortable. That's what it means to be in a true Christian community. It's when you start like, like jamming about God and it's not strange. You're like, I read this thing. How amazing is this? And they're like, oh, I haven't heard that before. I know I read that too. How awesome is that? That's what it means. It's God is entering into the sphere and the context of your relationship. And it's not strange. It becomes pervasive. Are you talking about God? How, how much is the love of God and the reality of God on your lips? To love God, we must love him as he is, and we must love him comprehensively with everything, in every moment, with all of our being. That's what he calls us to. How in the world do you do that? How, how, how does that happen? I mean, you haven't done it today, and it's Sunday. That's going to be rough tomorrow, right? How, 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 are, how do we become the kind of people where this becomes a reality? The passage gives us a hint that we love God by grace. Verse 10 says, and when the Lord your God brings you into land, he says, to give you 
God's going to bring you into the land to give you, verse 11. And when you eat your fill, right, he's talked about the cisterns that are built for you and that you didn't have to build and these houses that are full of things that you didn't have to fill. Then take care lest you forget the Lord, which is the natural disposition of the heart without God, that I will forget the gifts of the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why should we obey the commands of the Lord? Why should we love the Lord? Because he's lovely. Yes, because, because he is the most beautiful thing, because he is the most remarkable thing, because he is the truest thing. But the way in which God invites us to understand what it means for us to love him is initiated in a different way. It's made most vivid in the story of the gospel of God coming to rescue his people in history to save them by grace. you think about the people of Israel, okay, these, these, they're now sitting outside of the promised land and, 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 and some of them, many of them, were young, young when they left Egypt. I want you to think that what God is telling them, he's saying, listen, before the law went on the doorposts of Israel, the blood went on the doorposts in Egypt before they were ever going to be able to write the law on the doorposts of their homes, of their lives, there had to be blood on the doorposts of Egypt. They took refuge under that blood. God does not give one command to Israel until he has rescued them. Now, I know 613 follow, and I get that. But what I'm saying is, like, what initiates it is I brought you out of the land of slavery. That's what initiated it, which is why 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love, just in case you're wondering how it works, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation, the, the atoning sacrifice, the, the covering for our sins. You cannot love God. You cannot have him be the pervasive reality of your life unless he makes that true in you. And what he's saying is, says, listen, here's how I want, you to, I want you to think about how you move towards the love of me is you understand the magnitude of my rescue and deliverance of you. That's where it begins. And from that place, from that position, we find ourselves moving towards him. The gospel becomes real. You see, I don't obey the law. I don't obey the commands of God. I don't love God because if I don't, God's going to get me. I don't obey because, because even he says so, though he does say so. Motivation for obedience to obey God's commandments and to love him is not because he says, I'm God and you're not, though he is God and we are not. But it's because God loved me, saved me, rescued me, and chose me by grace, and therefore I love God and obey his commands. It's because he loved you and saved you and rescued you and chose you that, because that's true, therefore you obey. That's, that's the order of the gospel. 
And if you begin with, I must love the Lord as he is, which you must love the Lord as he is, and I must love him comprehensively, which is the only way in which you can actually love the Lord, you will never even get near. You will always be crippled and crushed under it, or you're going to be doing a few things and feeling pretty darn good about yourselves because I know some people who aren't. No, you see, you have to begin with the reality of the cross. Like there had to be blood on the doorpost before there was ever going to be writing any of the law on it. I wish I had a cool like doorpost here where we could paint some blood on it and then we could take the letters of the law and start writing on top of that. But could you see it? Like now we can write it on there because every time you see the law, what else are you seeing? You're seeing that you were rescued by grace. Do you see? It changes everything. It changes everything you hear. It changes the moment when I see that I hit dismiss and I go like, oh God, I'm orbiting not around you, you're orbiting around me but I want to love you more. Will you make me the kind of man who loves you more to, tomorrow, today, now? That's what it means to become more like Jesus. That's what it means to love the Lord, is to begin to enter in through the blood on the doorpost, through the blood of the cross, for your sake and for mine. It's the only way forward. First John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. And so, loved ones, we have, to find, we have to find ways of inscribing. We have to find ways of inscribing that gospel message, that good news of grace on the doorposts of our lives. It's what the pause app is supposed to be for me. It's an invitation to inscribe the grace of like, I can't do it, but God's going to be able to do it with me. That I don't have it, that I'm overwhelmed, that I'm scared, that I'm not sure, that I've failed, but... Lord, I give everyone and everything to you. You see, it's, it's a rhythm by which the grace of God enters in. It's a rhythm that takes me back to the blood on the doorpost as I look at the letter on the doorpost. We must have rhythms of redemption like that that invite us to the cross. What are yours? Now, one of the questions I put in your community group is, what's, what's a new rhythm or a new practice that you're needing in order for there to be more of the comprehensive nature of what it means to love the Lord your God in your world and in your life. I talked to somebody a few years ago and they told me about how the, it was, I think maybe a decade ago, I'm not sure exactly, they, said that they wanted to grow in their love for God and of their knowledge of him and they just like, they tried a hundred things and nothing was working. And so finally they gave themselves over to the, to the practice of praying the hours. And, and as they prayed over, I think, a year and a half or two years at, you know, 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3, 6, that the process of bringing God to mind throughout the day at inconvenient times in the middle of a meeting as a, a reminder pops off and to just fire a prayer to the Lord or spend some time in a car prior to stepping into a meeting forged and for, formed their love for God in a way that never, nothing else ever had. And you could smell it on him when you're around him. There's, he knows the Lord. He's, he's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He knows the faithfulness of the Lord. He's not crippled under the weight of the law. He knows that God loves for him and is for him. He's fond of him. He knows it because he's been with him. And so he loves the Lord. Not perfectly not, and not consistently, not all the time, not in every possible way, but more and more. And that's what the invitation is to us. And frankly, that's exactly what that's what this meal is, this table is, is an invitation, right? It's a moment where we come as a sign, a symbol of what it means to enter the story of God's grace. 
It's a, it's a way of stepping towards the blood on that doorpost. In some way, in a very clear way, Jesus said, listen, whenever you come and you take the bread and you break it and remember my body broken for you and you take the cup and you drink it and remember my blood that was shed for you, what you're doing is you're, you're rehearsing the reality of what was done on your behalf in a way that's going to invite your heart to become different people. And you will begin to love me more and you will begin to obey me more. It's the only way, which is why this meal is so pivotal, which is why we do it every single week. Because if you don't start here, you'll go to you or you won't go anywhere. And neither one of those lead to God. They lead to you or to nowhere. And God's saying, come to me. I want you to love me because I am worthy of being loved. And I want you to love me because all you have to do is see what I have done for you. And from there, we will walk together as you become more and more the man and the woman and the teenager and the child that reflects the reality of who God is to the world. That's how it works. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a part of a community like this that's going to call each other to that. So as we take these elements, remember, this is the blood, the first step on which all the letters of the law are written, by which we now can both love and obey all that he has called us to for his sake and to his glory. Let's pray.